You are listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate. As we begin our service today, could we first acknowledge that we're on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation, whose lands have been previously occupied by the Huron-Wendat and Seneca First Nations and are part of the Williams Treaty of 1923? Okay. <laughs> it's nice to have some friends up here with me. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. My name is Ruth Gill, and it's a pleasure to welcome you here today, and a special welcome to anyone who's joining us for the first time, and happy Valentine's weekend to everybody. (laughs) A warm welcome to you. Grounded, Guided, Growing, A Time for Centering, from Scott Kearns. If, If all of you tomorrow we're admitted to the long-term care facility in which I work, and you all could be because it's age 18 and up, (laughs) age 18 and up if you need care, Um, you would be given a, a, or your family would be given a four-page template to fill in your life story and what what you were about. And I've read hundreds and hundreds of them now, and and they pour who they are onto the piece of paper and I see what has been important to them. I see how they've engaged in life. I see what they've learned. But only, only that's on the piece of paper. The next slide sort of captures our words from our mission statement. And I just, as I'm playing in the next song, to think about if you were writing your life story out, how, how would a reader see the truth that you sought, the uh, engagement with life that you had, what moved your heart, and why the planet is different because you lived on it. Uh, interesting to think about. We have three readings this morning. The first is by Marianne Evans, who is actually known by her pen name of George Eliot and was an English novelist, poet, and journalist. The presence of a noble nature, generous in its wishes, ardent in its charity, changes the lights for us. We begin to see the things again in their larger, quieter masses, and to believe that we too can be seen and judged in the wholeness of our character. The second reading is by Anne Lamott, who is an author of several novels and some nonfiction. Thirty years ago, my older brother, who was ten years old at the time, 
was trying to get a report written on birds that he'd had three months to write. It was due the next day. We were out at our family cabin in Bolinas, and he was at the kitchen table close to tears, surrounded by binder paper and pencils and unopened books about birds, immobilized by the hugeness of the task ahead. Then my father sat down beside him and put his arm around my brother's shoulder and said, Bird by bird, buddy. Just take it, bird by bird. And the last reading is from Ted Hughes, who was an English poet and children's writer. The only calibration that counts is how much heart people invest how much they ignore their fears of being hurt or caught out or humiliated. And the only thing people regret is that they didn't live boldly enough, that they didn't invest enough heart, didn't love enough. Nothing else really counts at all. Offered as wisdom for the journey. Maybe walk in its light. Focused Moments from Greta Bosper Uh, Many of you know that each week as I begin to prepare uh, for my Sunday gathering, I uh, read the lectionary passages that would be used on this Sunday a year from now. Uh, And so the focus moment, um, the psalm for a year from now, screamed out to be rewritten. So I rewrote it. Uh, um, So this is inspired by Psalm 37, 1 to 11, and 39 to 40. You can pull out the Bibles in your pews if you want to follow along. (laughs) Do not fret because of those who threaten your world. Neither wish yourself their power. For fear steals the moment that is yours. And seeking that which is measured in the currency of the world neglects the sustenance of the heart. Trust in what you have placed in the hearts of others and do good. Trust in what others have placed in your heart. By these gifts exchanged, you will count the joys of your days. And wherever you find yourself to be, you will be home. Commit your ways to these trusts, and your life will be built up in love. Turn your quest for vindication inward, toward your own heart. Shelter your want for justice there, until it burns your resentment away, and shines from you like a light, guiding all toward peacemaking. For the work of justice is to free the future from our pasts and guide our feet toward what we might become. Loose the fetters, then, that bind your heart to what has been. Free your heart for beauty and for light, walking free of what has been, even as you enter all of what might be. 
So the reason I couldn't remember last week what movie it was we were looking at this week was because the Academy Awards were last week. I had completely forgotten about that. But did I call it right or what? Parasite? Woohoo! Best movie ever. Uh, those of you who haven't seen it, uh, enjoy and remember that little thing about covering your eyes and you're not able to read the, uh, uh, what, what are they called? Subtitles. Thank you. Can't read the subtitles if your hands are over your eyes. Ah, but it was, it was a triumph, I think. Uh, I would have been deeply disappointed if the Academy had chosen not uh, to put its highest honor on that film because it was a, a, an amazing, profound uh, film with so many things to say to the current world in which we live. Uh, there was another film about war, and the films about war, nostalgic films about war, are often chosen. Uh, they triumph because they pull out of us uh, our desire to defend the things that we think are most important. Uh, but Parasite, I think, pulled out of us a recognition of what is at work in our world and the cost that it might have, uh, extreme uh, though it was played out in that film. Uh, when I looked at the passages for next year, uh, next year's Sunday, um, I pulled out of them the idea of taking heart, of encouragement. And you've often heard me say uh, that the center of the word encouragement is based on the French corps. It's for heart. It's about wrapping our hearts around. We encourage one another. Uh, we give one another our hearts. We take heart uh, from the presence of others who are able to provide us uh, with the strength and the courage we need to get through difficult times. Uh, and it is an incredible gift to us, uh, that encouragement that comes from another, uh, because it allows us uh, to go at least one more step uh, when we might have faltered uh, in front of what it was that we needed to face. I turned to André Comte Sponville's book, A Small Treatise on the Great Virtues, uh, which is a book that I've been reading probably for four years, back and forth and back and forth. Uh, he brings so much together uh, when he talks about the different virtues. And uh, courage is one of the ones that he says uh, precedes all of the virtues. That you have to have courage if any of the other virtues are going to be lived out. And so I turned to his work to explore uh, what it is that gives us the strength to be present to one another. Uh, and what gives others the strength to be present to us when we're confident there is nothing more that we can bear. Uh, and so looking to his work uh, and recognizing that he had far more profound comments on courage than I could have ever uh, come up with myself, um, one of the things that, that he uh, talks about is uh, the universal appeal uh, of courage. I mean, how many people don't uh, aren't like moved by someone who is courageous. I mean, we think of courage as this, this profound undertaking that people uh, engage in. And, uh, you know, they do outstanding things that many of us would shy away from, step back from, maybe hide in the other room until it was all over. Uh, people who are courageous uh, get our admiration, or so we think. Because Count Sponville, uh, and that's not Count, it's actually C-O-M-T-E. I'm Kant Spondo, uh, double-barreled name. Um, he says, well, what about the courageous bastard? Right? Like, what about that creep that is courageous, 
runs in, blows up a building with a bunch of people in it. That took courage. I mean, maybe he wasn't going to get out, right? So, though, so he, he says courage itself has no good or bad, right? It's how it is used uh, by the individuals who use it. The book was written in 1996. At that time, he talked about uh, in his, in his um, reflections on whether or not uh, someone who undertakes great acts of courage for their own benefit, if that's really courageous or not. Uh, and he describes uh, two planes um, blowing up or being uh, terrorists taking down two planes. Remember, this is 1996, so this is five years before uh, September 11th, 2001. Uh, and he talks about uh, terrorists plotting to take these two planes down, but one of them sits on the ground and watches it happen. The other one goes down with the plane. So if you're going to talk about courage, the one that went down with the plane is the more courageous one because he's going to die too. Unless, of course, Kant Spondel says, you put some kind of religious uh, benefit that that person is going to get in the afterlife uh, into the story, and then the one that goes down uh, with the plane is still perhaps not courageous because he's getting a larger reward when he dies along with everyone in that plane. Uh, and we can see the similarities clearly uh, between that and the 9-11 disaster, uh, the attack that took place. And we can see that also in so many different uh, religiously fed uh, acts of terrorism where the benefit is going to take place in the afterlife. Uh, and that would be across all uh, religious uh, traditions that have the sense of an afterlife or a reincarnation or some kind of benefit that may come through the end of one's life. So Count Spondle has said, okay, so there's courage that is, you know, good courage and courage that is uh, unhelpful. Uh, there's, there's courage that uh, is based on uh, one's own self-interest, which is really undermines the sense of courage. And there's courage that really has nothing to do with self-interest, where someone just responds and steps into a place of need and fixes something, makes it better, uh, is, is bold in the face of a risk to their own life or to their own well-being or health uh, and undertakes to uh, make something better for uh, or many other people. So he says that, that courage is really uh, only uh, the acceptance of or the incurring of risk without selfish motivation or without uh, personal, personal interest in what the outcome is going to be. Um, and, and he also no goes on to note that for atheists, because of the religious connection that so often is related to something that comes after life, for atheists, uh, it, it's most uh, applicable that courage has little uh, self-interest attached to it um, because there is, you know, if you put your life at risk, there's nothing coming after that. Um, no, forget it. Okay. Uh, he describes it, uh, and he, he describes many of the virtues in this way, as being a summit with two valleys on its side. And the two valleys on the side of courage are cowardice, you know, where you don't do it because you're just too afraid of doing it, and temerity, which is you're doing it, you know, because you're kind of crazy, uh, and you just want to see what it feels like, right? So there's so uh, courage is in the middle of that, the, the boldness that leads someone to act uh, just to 
get a feeling or uh, that's not really courage. So, so bungee jumping, I, I don't think he'd say that was really courage. Um, though certainly it would take that. So here's a quote uh, from him, and, and he's, a, he's attributing this to Aristotle. Virtuous courage is not absence of fear, but the capacity to overcome it by a stronger and more generous will. It is no longer, or no longer just, physiology. It is fortitude, moral strength in the face of danger. It is no longer a passion, it is a virtue, one that is the precondition of all others. It is no longer the courage of the tough, it is the courage of the gentle and of heroes. So, if you want a great book to read, uh, look for that book. And it'll take you forever, I hope, but it's taking me forever. So, to take heart is when we encourage, uh, we are encouraged by others, when, when we take that person's heart into our own, all of their strength, all of their uh, presence, all of their uh, best wishes for us, we take those into our own hearts, and we feel the strength of that and the power, and we take another breath, and we can take another step forward. There's something more that we can do when we have someone else's heart aligned with our own. We have a little bit more courage to face what needs to be faced because we have someone coming alongside with us. And this is where in the, in the psalm I talked about placing our trusts in one another's hearts, uh, pla- placing those things that we uh, would make true, that we would stand courageously alongside to make happen, and we place them in one another's hearts, and we hold in, within ours the trusts that others place in ours. And so it makes that bond of strength. I've talked many times about uh, if I had to come up with a definition of God, it would be about that relationship we get to make uh, between us. Every time we are in relationship with someone else, we are choosing how we want that relationship to be. And if we choose to make that relationship one that edifies the other, that calls the best out of the other, that challenges us to be the best in their presence, that sees the other... of a person of beauty and worth and value and who we allow to see our nature of that, then that bond that grows between us is what I would call love. It's in keeping with Martin Buber's I Thou theology. And so that bond can remain uh, no matter where we are, if we're at a distance from the person, no matter whether the person has died, uh, we live on and hang on to the strength that that person gave us in every situation. As soon as they come to mind, we have, that, we have their presence with us. And so we can uh, multiply our strength through the connections and the relationships that we've had. Um, they may, when someone encourages us, It's not because we lacked in whatever it was that they're placing into our hearts. We may have had it. It's that we may falter without their presence and their witness to that fact. They may, of course, be giving us something we never ever dreamt we'd ever have before. But more often than not, it's simply that we need to be reminded that these are choices that we would make. We need to be reminded that we have the strength to do this. We need to be reminded that we are not alone. We need to be reminded that there is the presence of how many ties of love and support and care working with us through that difficult moment. So, so take heart is uh, take my heart, literally. It's take my heart. Well, I suppose that's not literally, is it? No. 
It's not literally. Uh, yeah, please. Gwen's coming to take my heart. No. Okay. We have to actually uh, consider that someone is giving us uh, the, the strength and the benefit and the presence that, that we would like. Um, so when I go to the second reading, I loved that second reading about the, the uh, project on birds. Um, how many of you had a moment like that when you were sitting at the dining room table with books and papers and colored pencils and, oh my gosh, it's the last minute and your parents are standing over you? Uh, when my parents were standing over me, I was probably going to get it done. When, my, when I was responsible for doing that myself, it was unlikely that it was going to get done. But, you know, it would get done eventually. I always say that I got my BA in, the, in three months, the last month of every year. Because that's about the only time I ever did any work. But um, so picturing this kid at the dining room table, head in hands, you know, all of this stuff splayed out, and, and the sister watching it and thinking, ooh, are you ever in trouble? And then the dad going up and saying, bird by bird, buddy, just take it bird by bird. And I thought, is that not what we say to one another when we get to those kinds of places where we can't, we have no idea where we're going to go. We have no idea how we're going to accomplish it. And we just take it one bird at a time, right? Um, birds are something that I kind of, I like to collect, like little sculptures of and pictures of. And there's a funny little video on YouTube called Put a Bird on It. You should take a look at that because it's really very funny. It's about a marketing ploy. Um, all you have to do is put a bird on it and somebody's going to buy it. Yep, yep, put a bird on it. I got it. Um, so they do this very funny thing about putting birds all over things and people going crazy over them. So uh, it's worth the look. But, but that bird by bird um, encouragement, uh, I felt because I could see that's the step by step. That's the one thing uh, that will take you forward. Just one thing takes you forward. And then as soon as that's taken care of, there's one more thing. And you do that. And then as soon as that's done, there's one more thing. And you're already three. You already have three. You've done three. Right? Which is amazing. Right? When we're moving through stuff that is really, really difficult. So having someone encourage us, bird by bird, buddy. We'll all remember that. Just bird by bird. Um, we can make it through those really difficult times. I shared with... Uh, Emily that I was going to share this story, but Emily um, let me know that she was on the subway this week and uh, recognized that an individual on the subway uh, looked and uh, was postured in such a way that she understood exactly uh, what he felt like and what he was going through. And it was a very dark time for him, and she could see that in his countenance and the way he was sitting on the subway. So she had a card in her pocket, and she's given these to several people. She gave one to me. Uh, and it said, all it says on it is, you matter. It's a white card with you matter on it in black letters. So she went over, and she held it out to him, and he, sort of, he didn't really lift his head up. He just kind of looked at it, and she said, it's for you. And he looked at her, and she said, yeah, it's for you. So he took it. And he, for the rest of the time he was on the subway, he just stared at that card. And then when he got up to leave, he went over to Emily and fist-bumped her and got out of the, out of the subway. She made, she, she took one step, and he took one step 
That was one step away from the despair that he was in at that moment that she saw on his face that wasn't there in the same way when he got up and left the subway. Nobody who is that filled with despair gets up and fist bumps someone. So he was saying, you did this. You saved me from this. Maybe just for today, but for today. So it was an incredible gift. And we have, that's giving someone your heart. That's giving someone permission to take heart from you, uh, to be that person of, of strength and power. Um, one of the things uh, that I do on a regular basis is the Kirtan Kriya meditation, Kundalini meditation. Is anyone familiar with that? Uh, you should be, because I taught it to you about 12 years ago. Just saying. Um, but the reason I taught it to you because it's so good for mental acuity, right? Uh, it's, uh, it's been shown scientifically to have an improvement if you do 12 minutes of this um, every day. It has an incredible improvement on your memory, uh, 10% improvement in memory if you do it for 12 weeks, and it's 12 minutes of doing it. And so uh, I say it's been scientifically proven, but there's been some religious backlash on that. So uh, you start by singing, Satanamo, and you do it, and you're touching your fingers, Satanamo. You do that for two minutes, then you do, you whisper for two minutes. Never do I have enough juice in my throat to do two minutes of whispering. Then you do it for four minutes silently, still doing the fingers, right? Then you come out of it with two minutes of whispering, and then another two minutes of, so you that 12 minutes, and you'll be 10% smarter. Oh, no, sorry, not smarter. You'll just have a 10% better memory. So I do this uh, meditation on an almost daily basis. The reason I say there's some objection to the scientific is because, of course, it comes from a religious, uh, religious practice, that uh, meditation form. And so some members of that religion say, well, it's because of the religious connotation. These are holy words that you're doing, and they are uh, stimulating particularly uh, significant points in the body when you are touching the fingers to them. So it was a religious experience that improved your memory, right? had nothing to do uh, with just, you know, the scientific stuff. And the words, what the words mean are, I always have to read this, uh, birth, uh, beginning, and the totality of the cosmos. That's sa. Ta is life. Existence and creativity manifest. Na is death and transformation. And ma is rebirth, regeneration, and consciously experiencing the joy of the infinite. So uh, birth, life, death, the infinite. Right? And rebirth. Right? Birth, life, death, the infinite, and rebirth. So when I am doing the silent time, which is the only time my brain actually can think while I'm doing the satana ma. Um, I don't use birth, death, uh, rebirth, everything, or birth, life, death, anyway. See? I've got my own words that I figured out to go with it, and it's into, through, out of, everything. Into, through, out of, everything. And that applies 
everything in our lives, every moment, we go into a moment, we go through the moment, we go out of the moment, back into everything again. The world cycles through us at approximately the size of our arm every day. That, about that much molecular change takes place in your body from the things that you're absorbing uh, and things that you're losing, the size of an arm, into, through, out of everything. When we're in situations that are difficult, that are challenging, that we may have backed away from, that we might have, you know, sat down and said, okay, pick somebody else, into, through, out of everything. We have the capacity to be and see ourselves as part of everything and never actually alone in decisions that we're making, though sometimes we may be the first person to stand up and make a courageous move, but we stood up and took a courageous move and we made it. And then into, through, out of everything. We get to experience this with the larger group. Um, I wanted to uh, address some of, the con- some of the concerns about what's going on uh, with the wet sweat and um, indigenous leaders, uh, the chiefs and the bands that were signed uh, the documents, and there's some confusion about who is right and whether or not the Trans Mountain Pipeline should go through. And, and the challenge is between the Indian Act, uh, which created bands, uh, and the traditional chiefs, uh, and who has the right to make the, those decisions on that property. And those who are standing up with the, the traditional uh, chiefs are standing up because of a 1997 agreement that the federal government made, made with them, that they were found to have the right to govern and make choices over their traditional lands. So that group is now aligning uh, considerable support across the country uh, in terms of their... Uh, their use. So they, someone stood up, went into that situation. A number of other people stood up, went into it with them. They have a whole nation of people scattered who will stand up, go go into. They're now in the midst of the through with so many people uh, who are making a decision to be supportive. And, you know, there are so many people who are not supportive. Like, there, is, there's, there will be tension until this process is completely, uh, is completed, rather. Um, but that we can see it as a going into, uh, taking courage, uh, and going out of, perhaps with a changed um, way that things go. So uh, the second reading, or the third reading, I'm sorry, uh, was about a commitment to be present to another uh, in their challenges and to put trust into one another's hearts and make a home in our own heart for what others place within us. So it gives us this uh, invitation, if not the the challenge, to uh, be courageous. I posted a quote on Facebook the other day, um, and really I was just trying out this new app that had this cool way of putting together a quote in half a second. Um, And so I pasted a quote that I had just underlined in Comte Bonville's book and put it up there. Um, And the quote said, um, science has never made anyone courageous. Okay? There was a bit of a pushback on that. 
a couple of people said, are you kidding me? It's only because I know about the science stuff that I've taken on all this stuff. I, you know, I make, that, I make that decision because of science. If the science wasn't there, I wouldn't have made that decision. You know, I'm being courageous because of science, right? <clears throat> Screech to a halt. Um, so I, I clearly, because I had just been making a quote post up in virtual seconds, um, I hadn't thought of it from the perspective of, but science is what I'm responding to. But the point of Comp Sponville's point is, science doesn't make you courageous. It's your heart that makes you respond to science with that kind of courage. Because you can decide not to do anything, you know, you know the facts, and how many of us know facts uh, that we don't want to do anything about, um, and if not everyone puts their hand up, there's a problem, you, you don't need to put your hand up. Anyone who doesn't, or anyone who knows science and doesn't do anything about it, just keep your hands in your lap. There, that's the easier way to do it. Uh, because we all know things that should scare the bejesus out of us, and we aren't, still aren't doing things about them. So, so science doesn't make you courageous. It's your heart that makes you courageous. It's your concern that makes you courageous. It's your family or the person next to you who makes you courageous. That's what makes you courageous. It's not science. The scientific facts can invite you to be courageous, but they don't demand it of you. So uh, that was the quote that I put up there. But one of the challenges that I think that we are experiencing in our world, and some of this played out at a dinner table not that long ago, um, when, when we have created, no, we have inherited uh, a system that uh, requires that we barter, generally with cash, uh, for the things that we want. And we have jostled our way through all kinds of crowds to get those things. Uh, we go shopping um, at our local grocery store. Uh, we go to the local department store. It was Woolworths and Zellers when I was growing up. Uh, and you would jostle with people to get what it was you wanted there. You would sit down at Woolworths and have French fries and gravy. Remember that? Like, that was the best, wasn't it? French fries and gravy at the Woolworth counter. Um, and you would, sometimes you'd go to the market. There might be a market in your town. So you'd go to your market. You'd talk with the farmers who had brought the food. And, and you'd be, you know, you'd be racing for a certain stock of celery. And someone would get it just a moment before you got there. And so you, you were interacting with people uh, through that whole time. It's not very often that you could go uh, out and undertake one of those transactions without looking at someone in the eye at some point in time or maybe even having an engagement. Uh, I read an article uh, where an individual was talking about how he wanted to change his life just a little tiny bit, and he realized that there was a, an interaction that took place all the time that he did sort of on, on remote. Uh, and it was cashing out at the grocery store or wherever he was. He would just go stand there with his items, uh, wait till the tolly was made, put the card in, pay for it, uh, have it put in a bag and walk out, right? Never once would he look the person in the eye who was actually serving him. And there used to be a there used to be an ad on television where the guy is picking stuff up and he's putting it in his pockets and everything while he's going through the store, and then he just walks out. And the security guide comes, guard comes up to him and says, "Excuse me, sir. You think he's going to be arrested for shoplifting?" And the, and he goes, "You forgot your receipt, because when he walks through, when he walks out of the store, everything he's picked up is screened." 
and it's calculated and comes right out of his bank account. He doesn't even have to talk to anybody. Anyway, that's, that's moving ahead a little quickly. But this guy, who realizes he's not looked, he's not looked a sales cashier person in the eyes ever, decides that he's going to make that a moment. He's going to actually look at the person and say, hi, how is your day going? And the person will say something to him, and then he would respond. And now he finds that he actually loves that interaction. He loves going and saying hi to the person and finding out what their day is looking like. And are you up to anything special this weekend? You know, and they, they have these conversations, and he loves it. Okay. So we're not quite at the point where we can fill our pockets and walk out of the store and say, oh, gee, I thought they had a scan thing in here. Uh, that's not happening yet. But what is happening is that we're having fewer and fewer and fewer of those connections when we purchase things. We don't have to go to the store. We can purchase things online. Uh, And in fact, many things we have to purchase online now because you can't get them in a store because there's no store that sells them unless it's a store that you don't want to shop at for the reasons that it's simply one family with that much wealth. Uh, It should be illegal. But um, so, so we don't have those interactions. We don't go and sit in the park uh, and feed the pigeons. We sit in our basement playing uh, games or reading, those of us who are slightly more uh, hoity-toity. Uh, we just stay at home and read important books, like Comte Bonville's book. That's a significant and important undertaking. Um, but we don't interact with groups of people in the way that we used to interact with them. We are insular. We, when we moved to uh, Pickering uh, many years ago, we now live in Whitby, um, we noticed that everyone, and I, I used to imagine this uh, from space, like Martians, uh, trying to figure out who, what the life forms on Earth were. And the life forms were these kind of rectangular things that moved around, uh, but were restricted to these black stripes, moved around, fed uh, underneath a canopy that looked like and looked like their food was taken in by a hose. Okay, all right, they were fed, and then they would disappear into a building. And then the next morning they'd come out of the building and do the whole thing again. Right? No actual individuals were ever seen from space. They were only just cars. And that, having lived only in downtown areas my entire life, the whole idea of a garage was weird, and it was impossible. Uh, for us to actually get to know our neighbors because we never saw them, right? They came out of their car, out of their garage and their car, they went to work. Uh, We came out of our garage and our car went to work. Ne'er the twain shall meet. Remember that? I don't know who said that. It's not original. I'm just saying. So we're losing these contacts with people that give us the opportunity to uh, stretch ourselves a bit, to grow a little bit, to build community, even in some kind of informal way, to have recognition. There's a, if I say the clerk at the Zellers in Pickering, Scott will know exactly who I mean, uh, the woman that we both would engage with because she was lovely. She'd been there since the store had opened and then Zellers closed. And, you know, anyway, we used to make those connections regularly, and most of you do because you don't get your groceries online and you don't purchase your clothing online um, and you don't, you know, buy presents for your kids online. Uh, your adult children or your younger children or whoever you're buying gifts for. You don't do it online for the most part. You go out and do it because that's the way you've always done it. But we have an entire generation coming up behind us who has very little of that engagement taking place. So when we 
recognize that, we realize that there's this lack of community, lack of ties, and fewer and fewer people to wrap their hearts around one another. Fewer and fewer people who will actually stretch to understand loss and care for people. Uh, Fewer and fewer people who care at all uh, because the world that they're in is strengthening neurons that don't know anything about you, have never seen you, haven't talked to somebody outside their house or workplace in ever. We're moving into a world that is going to be uh, critically changed because of the technology that we've put into it and the ease of access that we have created. This, of course, has an impact on all of us, uh, on ourselves, because uh, we have the opportunity to engage in ways that we know and that are normal for us, and we have the capacity to allow that to be seen. I want to be seen engaging with that person in front of me. I want to be seen having a conversation with the bank teller. Um, I want to be seen, uh, who was it that had the great, yeah, Frank had the fabulous conversation with the bank teller that he shared with us last week. I want to be seen, I want to witness to. You know the word witness? Uh, We generally pack that away in that box marked evangelical Christianity. We witness to right relationship every time we practice it particularly in public. We witness to how to encourage one another, how to wrap our hearts around each other, how to give one another courage every time uh, we do that. We witness to reaching out and making a difference in someone's life every time we step out of our comfort zone and do it and make a difference. We are called to witness to encouragement. And as we do... I would be deeply, deeply shocked if we didn't, in turn, encourage ourselves. Take heart, be encouraged, and be that beyond your comfort zone so that the world, too, may come to see and understand and be the courage they will need to be in this world. Thank you.
With apologies to the youngest and the oldest individuals in this room, we are of a generation that has known incredible gifts, that has had the privilege of learning what it felt like, what it feels like to fall in love with being together. One of the things that I think is the most important uh, piece of work the human family has to do right now. We know what that feels like. I just, I just gave you a perspective on stuff that you know so well. Uh, it's embedded in your code, your DNA, your how to live. But you are privileged people. And that code has been passed down in bits and pieces. So your work is not yet done. You have to go out and share that. You have to go out and teach people. You have to go out and witness to what courage looks like. You have to go out and risk. So go do that work and shine. Thank you. Come by the hills to the land where legend remains where stories of You have been listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate.